the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We've uh, talked about uh, the work of our next guest, Matt Taibbi, contributing editor for Rolling Stone uh, over many months now, because even though he is uh, no fan of Trump, um, he's not uh, self-identified as part of some media resistance either. He's actually done really good pieces asking a lot of important questions about the conduct of those in power, past and present, uh, past including Jim Comey, and John Brennan and Loretta Lynch and the Obama administration and the Mueller investigation, the Durham investigation. So doing what a journalist is supposed to do, I guess, question things that don't make sense or bump up statements that are in conflict with one another. He also is um, the uh, a podcaster. He uh, co-hosts a podcast, Rolling Stone podcast, Useful Idiots. He recently had Michael Moore, the documentarian, on. And uh, this was the exchange, uh, Michael Moore uh, offering his take on uh, race in America. Two-thirds of all white guys voted for Trump. That means anytime you see three white guys walking at you down the street toward you, two of them voted for Trump. You need to move over to the other sidewalk because these are not good people yeah. that are walking towards you. You should be afraid of them. And the on third someone. one probably says, I'm thinking about voting for Trump. Right. Yeah, the, th- well, the third one is yeah. you yeah, and yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. We're like, we're traitors. We're traitors to our race. That's how they see us, too, by the way. For more on uh, all of the above, we're pleased to be joined by Matt Taibbi, contributing editor for Rolling Stone, podcaster at Useful Idiots, author of the book Hate, Inc., Why Today's Media Makes Us Despise One Another. Matt, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. I, I, I just have to get your uh, handle on what Michael Moore said on your podcast. I, I, look, I voted for Trump. But I, I don't think white I don't think of like this at all, period. But I don't think white people who didn't are traitors to my race. You know, I, I, the Michael Moores of the world uh, continuing with the theme of deplorables. Uh, they think they're helping themselves. No. And, and look, yeah, I probably should have said something in, in that moment. But in the, you know, on the, on the sort of left siding media world, it's a. It's a, it's a trope. It's an inescapable trope that anybody who voted for Trump is a bad person. So when he went into that spiel about you know something that's factually true, which is that two two of every three white men voted for Trump, and then he says that those are not good people. You know, I, I was just kind of hoping that we would just move on to the next question as quickly as possible. But uh, you know, it, it blew up into a thing, and I, I understand why. But uh, you know, that's how people feel about Trump. People have very very strong feelings about it. I've written a lot about how. 
you know, some of this has gotten out of hand to the point where people are not able to see uh, issues for what they really are because they're so focused on Trump the individual. And yeah, yeah, you're right. I do think it's a continuation of that instinct that led to the deplorables comment, which, um, you know, which also is, I thought, counterproductive at the time and said so. I actually I actually I, I appreciated the interview because I, for exactly what you just said, people reveal who they are. That's fine. That's what Michael Moore thinks. It's ironic. I mean, Michael Moore is predicting Trump's going to win in 20. 2020 some sort of exogenous event and he's sort of blind to the fact that in part he may win re-election in 2020 because of the incendiary remarks of people like michael moore but but that's fine i mean you know i i want people to like tell me who they are not posture to pretend they're something they're not so i'm I'm not taking you to task for it i just wanted to to review it with you that's all no i i get it i I do get it when hillary clinton said the deplorables thing at the time, I, I it's it's interesting the progression on this because when she first said it, it was kind of the universal belief among you know journalists, even people who kind of work in the sphere of journalism that I do, that it was a huge unforced error that you can't insult voters that way. Once Trump got elected, that went out the window, and not only did that become acceptable, but remember the original formulation was that I think only a half or a third of the voters were deplorable, um, <laughs> and then it went to being all of them were. Yeah, you right. Know? Citizens for responsibility and ethics. In Washington, FOIA request. They've got effectively what turn out to be transcripts of Andy McCabe, former deputy director and acting director of the FBI, Andy McCabe, basically admitting that he lied to the FBI. And you know, he, you know, his, yep, I did. It was basically his admission that he had told them something different in a first meeting than was true, and he copped to it in a second meeting. You know, the, the other thing that's across the political spectrum here is watching people in charge of our law enforcement agencies and spy agencies with immense power seemingly above the law. For all the talk on both sides, if politicians aren't above the law, the president is above the law. I think the question a lot of Americans' minds, and it used to be on the minds of the left, too, are people— uh, uh, in the fourth branch of government, particularly law enforcement and intelligence, are they above the law? They absolutely are. And, and the thing that's been incredibly concerning to me in the last three years or so, and I've written a lot about this, is it's something that you just mentioned, which is that the preoccupation with abuses of power by intelligence and counterintelligence and law enforcement, that used to be a big concern of people who identify as politically left. And that has completely disappeared in the age of Trump. We routinely see incidents where law enforcement or intelligence or counterintelligence behaves badly, does inappropriate things, and people are completely disinterested in hearing about it, you know, on the other side of the aisle. You uh, wrote a piece a few weeks back that we're in a permanent coup and you go, which is something uh, a lot of Trump supporters say, too. You provide a lot of detail to support your contention, your perspective on why you're you're driving to that point, um, including sort of imagining how what the reaction would have been if you had um, the heads of the spy agencies and law enforcement agencies accusing President Obama of having links to Al-Qaeda and uh, prosecuting a case against him in part surreptitiously just to try to, I think, get in the minds of the left to say, would you like that? If you wouldn't like that, then you shouldn't like some of what's going on at present. And I wonder how you're received within media circles. (laughs) You're a pretty high profile media guy. You, as you said, you're sort of center left and uh, writing pieces like that. I'm number one, getting it published in Rolling Stone. Number two, how you're received by uh, by your colleagues when you write pieces like this? Well, you know, I've been kind of a kid with lice for you know three years now because I, <laughs> I had questions about the Russia thing from the start. I you know I lived in Russia for a long time, for over a decade, and and um, I speak Russian and. 
the story never made any sense to me at all. It, it, similar to 9-11 Truth, it, it would have been a, a an extremely elaborate conspiracy to pull off, and it's it's not in the style of either Donald Trump or, or the Russians, frankly. But but that wasn't so much the, the big thing. The big thing was, was episodes like the one you just referenced, where you know, I was looking at, you know, in January 2017, when, you know, James Comey and, and John Brennan and Jim Clapper and Mike Rogers, they, you know, they presented, you know, the incoming president with the Steele dossier and basically with the idea that they were going to make him aware of blackmail material and they promised to keep it close. And then within like 10 seconds, they, it was leaked to all the news agencies so that everybody could write about basically the P-tape. I mean, that was what really what happened there. No matter how you look at it, that's an act of insubordination by the top and spy agencies against the president. And, it's, you know, it, it certainly doesn't make the president look good or the United States look good. If it were anybody else, people would be completely freaking out about that in the moment. And, of course, it continued from there for, for you know, three more years of leaks after that. Again, I just don't understand the last of concern about the institutional response there. It it's, seems to me a big story, but it's, um, you know, it's something nobody wants to, to talk about. And the lack of accountability, too. You, you know, if you turn out to have been wrong on something, it's fine. Everybody's wrong on things. So just own it. But there's no owning it. There's, there's just sort of glossing over it. This other piece that you wrote, five questions that remain after the release of the Horowitz report. I mean, you, you, you just pull from the report basically just bumping up statements that, for example, Comey and McCabe made that contradict a statement that John Brennan made. You pull uh, statements that Loretta Lynch made that contradict a statement that Comey made. Why are uh, you one of the few who actually wants those contradictions contradictions explained? Well, when the Horowitz report came out, the, the only headline that anybody wanted to take from it was the one about bias. You know, so as soon as they had a headline that they could extract from it, which said that the start of the investigation, you know, met the minimal requirements of an authorized investigation, and there was a line in there about a lack of, of bias at the at the beginning, and that was nobody wanted to dig any more deeply than that, except it's a 416-page report, and there's a lot in there, and it's you know manifestly obvious if you read it that Horowitz, who I don't think is any you know flaming conservative or anything like that, but he was deeply, deeply troubled about what, what he was finding. And yeah, there's, there's, there are contradictory statements about between the FBI and the CIA and the Justice Department about how the investigation began. And more to the point for reporters, there's all sorts of information in there to suggest that lots and lots of news stories we wrote, uh, particularly those that are sourced to, to Christopher Steele, um, were, were, were wrong, were fake. And there hasn't been any appetite for going back and saying, yeah, gee, you know, we, we messed that up. Also, also the, the Nunes memo, the Devin Nunes memo, which right. was universally panned, you know, and there's no way to look at it now and not say that it was basically accurate throughout. And, and I, I think even if you're, you know, not a fan of Devin Nunes politically, you got to own up to that, don't you? I, I just don't understand that either. He is Matt Taibbi, contributing editor for Rolling Stone, podcaster, Useful Idiots as the podcast, and the author of the book Hate, Inc., Why Today's Media Makes Us Despise One Another. Matt, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much. I just can't help the feeling I'm living a life of illusion. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is The Dan Prof Show.
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And uh, the man that was taken out by U.S. Armed Forces on Thursday night, Qasim Soleimani, according to our State Department, was responsible for 17% of U.S. troops killed in Iraq from the years 2003 to 2011. Uh, the, the attacks orchestrated by Iran, in addition to thousands more, perhaps tens of thousands more of Iraqi civilians and police and others. This was a bad guy. This was a terrorist general of a terrorist regime lording over a terrorist state that, by the way, right now is subject to a revolt of uh, from within, in part because of the Trump's reimposition of U.S. sanctions that have crippled the Iranian economy, including the oil exports. The question, though, was this the right time to do it? Or was this a rash decision by the president? Was this saber rattling or foreign policy for domestic political reasons? Doesn't seem so. Uh, Brian Hook, special representative for Iran and special assistant to Secretary of State Pompeo, uh, he uh, spoke to CNN after the attack on the U.S. embassy in Baghdad was quelled, providing a little bit of context to what uh, Foreign Service personnel, U.S. troops and our Iraqi allies have been enduring over the last couple of months. Well, our troops are in Iraq at the invitation uh, of the Iraqi government, and the Iraqi government is responsible for the safety and security uh, of those troops. Uh, The base where uh, our forces are stationed, uh, that was attacked about 11 or 12 times in just two months. And so we took uh, the measures, the president ordered the necessary measures to protect our troops. We then had uh, terrorists uh, protesting outside of our embassy in Baghdad. Uh, This is orchestrated by the Iranian regime. These are the kinds of tactics that they use. Forty years ago, they stormed our embassy. And then here we are 40 years later, and they're directing uh, these terrorist groups to then uh, attack our embassy. So the president took very decisive action and put in place uh, the necessary uh, force protections and for our people, our diplomats and our and our embassy. And it was the right thing to do. And today the situation is much better. Yeah. And uh, 40 years later, lessons learned. Uh, So American hostages weren't taken, as happened, of course, the U.S. embassy in Tehran in 79. Secretary of State Pompeo uh, on CNN after this morning, on Friday morning, after the, the successful strike last night explaining the thinking behind the decision. This is a man who inflicted enormous harm not only on American lives, but created uh, terribly destructive activities supporting Lebanese Hezbollah, Hamas, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, uh, all of the bad actors in the Middle East. Qasem Soleimani was at the center of all of it. President Trump's shown enormous restraint to date. While we've made clear to the Iranians that we weren't going to tolerate the killing of Americans on December 27th, an American was killed in Iraq, Uh, And then we watched uh, the intelligence flow in that talked about Soleimani's travels in the region and the work that he was doing to put Americans further at risk. And it was the time to take this action so that we could disrupt this plot, deter further aggression from Qasem Soleimani and the Iranian regime, uh, as well as to attempt to de-escalate the situation. Uh, The risk of doing nothing was enormous. The intelligence community made that assessment, and President Trump acted decisively last night. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, uh, West Point grad, vice president of the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation, and the author of a number of books, including Wiki at War and Private Sector Public Wars. Jim, thanks for joining us on the Dan Prof Show. And uh, the president and his team made the right decision here? Yeah. You know, I think what's gotten missed in a lot of the coverage is, is the deep backstory on this. So after, after, you know, when the United States withdrew from Iraq in 2011, 
um, and ISIS metastasized. You know, Iran also flooded in. In part, they flooded in because ISIS was their enemy too, and they were funding militias to uh, attack ISIS and and going after them as well. And when so we kind of I don't say had a truce, but we were kind of all focused on killing ISIS. What's happened in the last two years is after we defeated ISIS, essentially what Iraq did was weaponize. Uh, in, what the Iranians did was weaponize in Iraq the militias and the politicians and the security officials they controlled to basically attack Americans. And it just didn't start this week. It's been going on for well over a year. I mean, officially, there are at least 19 attacks. There have actually been a lot more than that. So this has been built for some time. And so this is an organized campaign by the Iranians. And you have to remember, Soleimani is he is the Osama bin Laden of the Quds Force. And this guy was in Baghdad, in Baghdad, in another country, directing terrorist attacks against Americans. This would be like if after Pearl Harbor, Yamamoto went on vacation in Waikiki. <laughs> I mean, this it's unbelievably brazen. Well, and but it, so, it's, and it speaks. Of course, the United States had to take him out. What else were they going to do? I mean, essentially, this is not an escalation on the part of the United States. We're simply defending ourselves from people that if we hadn't killed them today. They want to try to kill us tomorrow. Well, and, and it speaks to something Pompeo also mentioned, which is once news of Soleimani's death got to the streets, there was celebration by, you know, regular uh, Iraqi people on the streets, perhaps celebration on the streets of Tehran with the protesters there as well. And, and, the, and, and, and that's the, the point here is uh, an understanding of what has happened, how the Iraqi government has been corrupted by Iran and frankly, the, the people's uh, disgust with that occurrence. That's right. And I think that's another story that maybe hasn't been unpacked enough. In Iran, Suleiman is a hero. If you're, in, if you're, you know, if you're part of the regime and part of the people that support the regime, but if you're the person on the street, Suleiman is the guy whose people came and took your family away, tortured them, murdered them. Um, he's a great symbol of evil. They would be out cheering and celebrating except that the first thing that would happen is people would come out and shoot them. In Iraq, the, the Kurds, you have, the, you have Kurds, Sunni, and Shia. The Kurds, they have no use for the Iranians and Suleiman. Matter of fact, Suleiman directed attacks that killed Peshmerga, that killed Kurds. So they're, they're more than happy that he's dead. The Sunni, you know, which used to be the, the ruling party, but were in the minority, they've been the target of the Iraq militias for, for months. And hundreds of them have been killed and, and taken away. So they're thrilled this guy's dead. And even within the Shia community, which runs the government because the Shia is the majority of the population, but the Shias are split between guys who are basically bribed and, and working with uh, the Iranians and people who actually don't want their country taken over. So um, when people say protesters, you got to ask, you know, who's protesting and what are they protesting against? Well, right. And that sort of that was some of the initial misreporting about the attack on the embassy in Baghdad, the U.S. embassy in Baghdad. The, the, you know, it was, it was Benghazi all over again, some, some spontaneous protest uh, instigated by a right. video. It wasn't that bad, but it wasn't a spontaneous protest either. It was a directed attack. That's right. And, 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 the, and, and again, I think part of the story that just hasn't been reported on enough is the Iranians really, I think, overreached because 
the U.S. Embassy is in the middle of a green zone. It's hundreds of acres. It's surrounded by Iraqi security, which basically stepped aside and let these attackers walk up to the gate of the embassy. Well, how did that happen? And the way the way it happened was the Iranians went to their the security officials, the government officials that they control, and they made it happen. So essentially, the Iranians kind of outed themselves and really, in that attack, you know, laid out a blueprint of who is working for Iran, how they're working together, who's beholden to them. And they, and they really kind of illustrated for the Americans really who your friends are and who your enemies are in Iraq. Jimmy, let me uh, hold you over. I want to pick up our conversation about whether or not this development uh, exposes the folly of the appeasement strategy pursued by the previous administration. We'll be back with more Jim Carafano. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof. And this is The Dan Prof. Show. Welcome back to The Dan Prof. Show. We're talking to Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano from the Heritage Foundation about the uh, Trump administration's decision to launch a strike that resulted in the death of uh, uh, Quds General Soleimani, uh, seen universally uh, outside of Iran, uh, and perhaps their Russian allies and Venezuelan allies, uh, as a bad guy. Uh, one, I wonder, Jim, if this, uh, the Iranian posture right now, if it speaks to the folly of the appeasement strategy that was pursued by the Obama administration, as you have a lot of Obama-era apparatchiks, starting with former NSA Ben Rhodes, critical of Trump's approach to Iran, taking a hard line with Iran, suggesting that it's done nothing but worsen Iran's behavior. Well, that's just partisan sniping. Look, I, I won't begrudge the Obama administration for trying something different. Right? They tried an egregious strategy with Iran. They tried the Iran deal. Okay, they tried it with the best of intentions. They thought that that was a way essentially, to, to get the Iranian regime to back off and calm down. The reality is, is the opposite happened. The Iranians looked at that as weakness. They just became more dangerous. They never really curtailed their nuclear program. We saw that because they just, they just basically turned the switch on, turned their nuclear program back on, and it failed. Okay, but I, I don't, I'm not throwing the Obama guys under the bus for, for trying. But for them to turn around and say, well, these guys don't know what they're doing, it's just ridiculous. Um, you know, I didn't complain when they killed Osama bin Laden. I cheered that as an American. Right. I was a terrorist, and we took him out. And then for them to basically turn around and say, oh, what, what are they doing taking out Soleimani? Well, what's the difference? There's not a difference. I mean, unless you're being partisan about how you look at this. Is, is Iran, is this, um, this the, the, the last couple of months of back and forth and attacks? I, should, I don't want to euphemize it, uh, 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 euphemize it, but uh, but— is this uh, Iran testing the resolve of the Trump administration, what they're willing to do to try to achieve a stable Iran-free or largely Iran-free Iraq? Is this desperation because of the economic dire straits of the Iranian economy is in, some combination of the two? Well, I mean, I think the, the uh, Iran regime would essentially like to break out of the isolation that the, this administration has put them in. And basically embarrass them by pushing back, and, and so they've they've been poking. This isn't the first you know rodeo they tried shutting down the straits, interfering with shipping, and right. 
firing missiles at Saudi Arabia and shooting down an American drone and attacking the embassy. So they tried a whole bunch of different things trying to do this. Now, you know, maybe they hope that Trump will be have some kind of defeat and embarrassment and won't get reelected uh, and they'll get somebody who will be nice to them. Maybe uh, they hope they'll, in the end, break the U.S. resolve and, and the U.S. will just kind of negotiate some kind of sweetheart deal. But but that seems to be the Iranian strategy. I, I, I don't begrudge them, you know, trying that. And it's, you know, I think reasonable from their standpoint. I mean, they're not interested in starting World War Three either. I mean, that, they're not going to do the kinds of things that escalate into a, a direct armed conflict between the two countries. But they're they're pushing back and, and looking for ways to break the U.S. resolve. And the reality is, is Trump has frustrated them at every turn. And let's be honest. Every time the United States pushes back on the Iranians and demonstrates that we're not going to put up with that, we get more friends in the region and they get less. What kind of message does this uh, operation taking out Soleimani, what kind of message does it send to Russia? Uh, well, you know, that's another story that we haven't really talked about enough. Just last week, the president of Russia thanked the United States of America for helping thwart and stop a terrorist attack against Russians on Russian soil. And then the Russians turn right around and condemn the United States for preventing the terrorist attack against Americans. It's it's pretty whack. <laughs> well, but OK. Right. So I, I understand I'm not looking for intellectual consistency from Putin. But I mean, does it does it uh, does it send a message to him about Russia's uh, activity in the region? Well, I think it sends a message to everybody, Russia, China, all of them, that if, if you kill Americans, if you come after our vital interests, we will defend them. The other thing is, is which we're, you know, we always talk, we just had last week, everybody was like throwing up their hands because the Russians, the Chinese and the Iranians were doing joint naval exercises. Like, oh, my God, they were stacking up against us. But look at the reality here. The Russians and the Chinese have done nothing for the Iranians. Uh, they cannot help them, and they won't help them. And Iran's really on its own. So none of these guys can really help each other. And you know, people are just looking for excuses for America to look weak and back off. They look, they've got the wrong president. He is Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, Vice President of the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Jim, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. <laughs> But the Lord could turn the heart of my This time and night, more or less Listen Back to the Dan Prof Show, and I want to reference something else Peggy Noonan wrote. I've referenced her column looking ahead to the 2020s a bit, but uh, one of the topics she tackles briefly is big tech. Uh, and she writes, the uh, belief that big tech needs to be corralled, to be broken up or declared public utilities, will grow on the left and the right. The big companies are too powerful, have too insinuating an effect on our lives. This won't be Mr. Trump's issue. Again, he thinks it's about him and whether their algorithms are unjust to him and to conservatives. He wants big tech to bow to him, and they will. They'll come for dinner, be his pals, and work out deals they think he can be had. He can, but the issue isn't going away, and wise lefties and creative conservatives may fully seize it. 
I don't necessarily agree with uh, her assessment of Trump's perspective on big tech because his uh, criticisms have been more broad than just uh, algorithms he believes return unfair search results. But there certainly is an appetite on the left and the right. Think Elizabeth Warren making breaking up big tech companies part of her uh, part, really part of her uh, campaign platform, central to it for uh, much of the campaign, uh, telling Apple they can you know choose to do apps or they can choose to do platform. They can't do both. Uh, obviously, Google, Facebook, uh, Twitter, and uh, and and, and uh, other of the big tech companies in their sites, and it, and it's not just Democrats. Uh, Josh Howley of Missouri has said similar things about the big tech companies. And, of course, you've had a lot of very high-profile controversies involving big tech, not just in terms of the decisions they make that they paper over with uh, Silicon Valley Newspeak, which, by the way, as an aside, is just brilliantly portrayed, if you haven't seen the series Silicon Valley by Mike Judge, which I just finished its uh, sixth, and I think it was a sixth and final season. Brilliant. Uh, make the world a better place is a punchline. It becomes a punchline in Silicon Valley. It's just brilliantly parodied. And at Google, don't be evil. That was their slogan. That's also become a punchline. So it's not just their, their work with, uh, say, communist China. It's also who they say they are when it comes to uh, supporting particular candidates, virtue signaling on particular Issues mostly revolving around identity politics. Uh, It's who they say they are in those moments versus how they behave on a day to day basis. And so this op ed from Ross LaGenesi, who was the head of international relations for Google and explains why he just left. By the way, he's now a Democrat candidate for U.S. Senate in Maine. Uh, He uh, writes that. uh, He joined Google in 2008 when those words, don't be evil, still mattered. I used them to guide product designs that put the company's success above a user's privacy, uh, such as during the the development of Google's ill-fated social network buzz. I used those words myself in 2010 as the head of public policy for Asia Pacific when I executed the company's landmark decision to stop censoring search results in China, putting human rights ahead of the bottom line. And he talks uh, a lot about uh, Google's on-again, off-again relationship with China and the internal tension between those who wanted to not do evil, like do the bidding of Chinese communists, versus those who wanted to fully exploit the Chinese market, huge market that it is, to grow the business, right? And, uh, uh, augment profits. Uh, La Genesi argued against those plans to exploit the market, knowing that a complete turnaround in uh, Google's approach would make Google complicit in human rights violations and cause outrage among civil society and the many Western governments that had applauded the decision to pull out of the Chinese market, not be their de facto censors in 2010. Uh, He uh, goes on, after three years in Asia, the company asked me to be head of international relations in late 2012, a role responsible for Google's relationships with diplomats, civil society, and international organizations like the U.N. In my new role, my team and I continue to engage with product executives who were frustrated by the phenomenal growth in the Chinese market and pushed hard for our reentry into China. I was alarmed when I learned in 2017 the company had begun moving forward with the development of a new version of a censored search product for China codenamed Dragonfly. 
uh, his uh, solution to the consternation internally between him and product developers, him and others and product developers. He writes, my solution was to advocate for the adoption of a company-wide formal human rights program that would publicly commit Google to adhere to the human rights principles found in the UN Declaration of Human Rights. Hmm. But each time I recommended a human rights program, senior executives came up with an excuse to say no. And he goes through some of the excuses they gave and the ways they pushed him off. And then he talks about the workplace culture in Google, too, how this was changing as uh, Larry and Sergey, Google founders, Larry Page, Sergey Brin, uh, delegated more to executives from Wall Street that uh, they had hired to more closely deal with the day-to-day operations of the company. Senior colleagues bullied and screamed at young women, causing them to cry at their desks, writes, uh, writes Lajanesi. At an all-hands meeting, my boss said, now you Asians come to the microphone, too. I know you don't like to ask questions. Jeez. <laughs> He uh, goes on to uh, write, despite being rated wide, uh, rated and widely known as one of the best people managers at the company, despite 11 years of glowing performance reviews and near perfect scores on performance evaluations and so on and so forth, I was told there was no longer a job for me as a result of reorganization, despite 90 positions on the policy team being vacant at the time. They were tired of La Genesi's, uh, push to attach consequences to the slogans they were promulgating uh and he talks about what changed uh and uh and what does it mean the questions it raises uh about big tech google specifically big tech generally uh for example he has is an inevitable outcome of a corporate culture that rewards growth and profits over social impact and responsibility is it in some way related to the corruption that has gripped our federal government well one one is profit driven and the other clearly is not uh, la Genesi, We'll uh, unfortunately have too much company in the U.S. Senate with his lack of understanding. But it is interesting. I mean, think about the James Damore saga, again, fired for uh, uh, writing things that were true, uh, backed up with evidence, but that were unpopular. Um, And uh, Lucky Palmer at uh, Facebook and many other such examples. Uh, A related story. Amazon threatening to fire workers who are outspoken on its environmental policies. Again, people trying to connect who they say they are with what they actually do on a day-to-day basis. So big tech will be a big issue in the 2020 presidential election and beyond. And it's going to be Republicans and Democrats and probably including the president that weigh in heavily. The Dan Proft Show. Cause they got the beat, the campus beat, the campus beat. Yeah, the campus beat. Yeah, welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Campus Beat is this recurring segment that we do, uh, detailing the good, the bad, and the ugly on college campuses. It's a lot ugly, no question about that. And Beat's a bit of a double entendre, especially at places like Berkeley and Middlebury. Uh, Some good news and bad news. Uh, Let's start with the bad news. Hillary Clinton, she's joining the ranks of uh, academia. Hillary Clinton's got a new gig, ceremonial one at that. 
appointed chancellor of Queens University in Belfast. Uh, no word on uh, what the compensation package is. You'll recall Bill and the run up to the 2016 election where the Clintons were supposed to return to the White House had uh, secured a, a wonderful sinecure for himself, Michelle Obama quality, and then some. $17.5 million is what uh, Bill Clinton earned during his time working, in quotation marks, being an ambassador, the way that Hillary Clinton will be here, apparently, for Laureate International, a private for-profit college. Hmm, I wonder what they had in mind. Also, uh, Laureate donated between $1 and $5 million to the Clinton Foundation. That were in the good old days where they had some... Uh, they had some market value among rent seekers, at least. So, uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm glad to see Hillary Clinton employed because, of course, you want to make sure the Clintons are still able to finance their mortgages, is, is, is plural. Uh, in better news, the uh, fight for academic freedom on campus, for it to be a true free marketplace of ideas, brings us to Iowa State. And an organization called Speech First has filed suit against Iowa State University, suggesting that, uh, among other things, uh, the uh, campus reporting system, and this is really important because these bias response teams uh, exist in 230-some-odd university colleges and universities. So this potentially could have a sweeping impact to the benefit of free speech on campus. Uh, the campus climate reporting system under the system, students are encouraged to report, quote-unquote, bias incidents to a panel that includes the chief and vice chief of the Iowa State University Police Department, the dean of students and university council. The uh, uh, moving party, the plaintiff in the case, says that definition of bias is unconstitutionally amorphous, entirely subjective, leaving students to credibly fear that the expression of their deeply held views will be considered bias and reported, which, of course, is exactly how it's played out on so many college campuses. Um, the... Uh, Iowa State Bias Board received more than 100 complaints in fiscal year 2018 alone, many including taking issue with political expression. So, you know, I support President Trump writing in a chalk on a sidewalk or some such thing, and and all of a sudden you're before some star chamber like uh, something Adam Schiff would preside over. So good news at Iowa State and bad news at at Queens University Belfast where Hillary Clinton will uh, be your brand ambassador. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show.